0: Welcome to Texas Style Coworking. The Ranch Office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at The Ranch. ESG Energized audience, it is January of 2024. I'm very excited to have joining me on the show, Dr. Joe Batir, who is my colleague at Oil and Gas Global Network, and he is the host of Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Dr. Batir, welcome to ESG Energized.
1: Thank you for having me. I am excited to be here and excited uh, to have more conversations with you, my esteemed colleague. <laughs> and usually we're in person, Yes, but here I we know. are on the computer talking hundreds of miles away.
0: Because, dude, I cannot go outside. It's freaking 20-something <laughs> degrees out. This is Texas, man. Like, what the heck?
1: Yeah, it is. <clears throat> It is so cold right now,
0: and but and you and you've got a little one running around in the background because there's a snow day.
1: Yes, exactly. A a snow day, <laughs> although <laughs>
0: there's
1: there's little to no snow, but it is so cold that they actually canceled school because they don't want to make children stand outside in the cold waiting for the bus. Yeah, because so we just don't know how to are. do that
0: in Texas. We don't. We just can't.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I. I remember uh, just a short anecdote here. We we had a a recent trip up to Alaska. It's winter in Alaska right now. Winter here too. And and my colleague couldn't find a jacket that seemed to be warm enough and they ultimately needed to borrow a jacket from a friend who used to work in the North Sea who was used to living in nordic countries yep. higher latitudes and had this jacket that supposedly was a -50 jacket and even that was kind of laughed at by the locals in alaska in, in fairbanks yeah <laughs> so
0: so take that norwegians
1: idea, <laughs> yeah and and just the idea of being able to go and buy a coat right now like even if you could buy a coat in in Dallas or Houston, it's probably not going to be warm enough for, (laughs) for this kind of weather.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lord have mercy. So, um, (laughs) but here we are, I see you've got, you're sitting in, in the comfort of your home. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. You've got on a, a vest, an insulated vest there and, and your, uh, your bow tie. Yep, your your bow tie. So I had
1: my signature your bow tie. signature
0: bow tie, which our our other colleague Jordan Driscoll just cannot shut up about. He is so annoyed <laughs> that you have made that your signature, claiming that he wore bow ties before you were born. So
1: you know, I I'm not going to comment on Jordan's age. I think that that would I'm He's sure disrespectful. That there, <laughs> Yeah, that may be disrespectful, but it, I, I will gladly accept that people have worn bow ties before me. It's just, it really is a matter of, can you pull off the bow tie? Oh, you do, dude. Is the bow tie part of who you are? It is. And yeah, so.
0: Yeah. So he can just shut up about it.
1: Yeah. Some people just aren't bow tie people
0: and that's okay. (laughs)
1: I am a bow type. He's
0: not. He's not. I don't even know why he's trying to even pretend that he ever could be. So anyway, that's that's for another that's that's for another day. But anyway, I had Driscoll on my show, and I was very anxious to to get you on my show as well. So we're gonna before we dive into it, there's a couple of announcements that I want to make. First of all, uh, listeners, Joe Batir and I, and some of the other hosts from OGGN will be at NAEP on February 7th through 9th at the George R. Brown Convention Center. So please come by February 7th through 9th. We'll be in the podcast pavilion recording shows live there from the event. Then uh, on February 17th is the Women Offshore Benefit Gala at the Petroleum Club in Houston. That is a black tie event and it's a Western theme. So I'm like... Ha, ha, what am i supposed to do put on a ball gown and cowboy boots and i, I don't even know what to wear dude i just don't yeah. even know what to wear uh,
1: western black tie western black. Well, interesting
0: well for guys there's definitely a look for men you know a formal cowboy look but for women i'm just struggling do i put on a big old belt buckle a cowboy hat boots and un- i just don't know but whatever. Yeah. What a terrible text, Good luck I with am. That one. Yeah. I, they're they're <laughs> gonna they're gonna oust me from the state. And then the last announcement that I have is uh, last week you heard on the show an episode that I did with the Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation. We support them here at OGGN. They have this year's student symposium on March sixth. At 10.30 a.m. at the Hess Tower, and to remind you, SELF, Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation, goes into schools and provides education for the teachers to equip their students with scientific tools to study the environment, and to really ask the right questions. It's a brilliant organization. So their symposium, which is the students, it's kind of like a science fair where the students present Mm -hmm. the projects they've been working on. We were there. We recorded live last year. It was absolutely brilliant. These children will blow you away. And the dedication of their educators that are right there with them, just beaming with pride, it is a wonderful event. So that'll be uh, March 6th, 1030 at the Hess Tower. So now let's, let's dive into it. What you guys may or may not know is we refer to Joe as the rock doc, Dr. Batir. So you yes. have a doctorate in fill in the blank. in.
1: So technically it is geophysics, but I always add that disclaimer because it is more applied. I am using geophysics and the laws of physics, physical principles to understand the subsurface. So I am not, I'm not really a physicist and not even a geophysicist. I am more applied, applied learning and applying those learnings. To rocks. To rocks and the rocks beneath our feet.
0: Well, I, I I've got to tell you that I'm incredibly uh, humbled because that had that for me would have been incredibly tedious had I needed to study that it was for my child too. As you know, she's graduating this year with her petroleum engineering degree from UT and she's just like, mommy, these rocks all look the same. And she'll send me pictures, right? When she was doing geo, she was sending me pictures of all these different rocks. And she says, they all look the same. Now I didn't think they looked the same, but to her, so, uh, You know, reservoir engineering, geos—that all that—that's not the path she's she's going on graduating. So
1: yeah, (laughs) so well, I, I I definitely feel you there because it is one of those geology is is one of those things where there are these little small minute changes, and those minute changes can change your definition of a rock type, and especially today. As you're doing something like a petroleum engineering degree, as you're going into what is currently the the age of unconventional shale, if you're going into, into oil and gas, onshore oil and gas, then those rocks, when we're talking about variation, it is it is first off the the components are all super, super small at those those mineral grains and the variation is almost like looking at the best example I can give is whenever you're trying to change like your grayscale on on some powerpoint you're making you've got jet black and then at the bottom you've got like a gray that right there is your variation between a a monster gusher well and a dry hole okay just changing the shade of color you can start seeing, oh, that shade of color actually means this part has X amount more sand in it. And that sand means it's going to be able to produce more oil or this amount or this color means that this is pure, true clay. And that clay, you're not going to be able to, to get into. So when she says all the rocks look the same, it is possible that they, they, for for anybody who doesn't look at rocks all day they could look the same but be completely different
0: aha uh-huh. okay
1: i know that was a big tangent no no but- no
0: but but that's that's the reason why i wanted to have you on the show is i wanted to have this discussion on the a, a more intelligent scientific discussion and and business discussion that goes along with that right because it's there's all the science but then how do we we make a business out of it specifically around Uh, your field of expertise and geothermal because your show is energy transition solutions and my show is around sustainability which energy transition falls underneath that right so it was important for me to have you come on and so i i love those those sorts of of tangents so first before we go any further what is your day job
1: so my day job i i and the geothermal lead for Tavera. Tavera is a consulting, technology development, and training company. And we we do all things subsurface. Our name, Tavera, means ground truth. So our our goal, our mission is to bring ground truth to our clients to help them really understand what they're looking at in the subsurface and how they can best utilize that. Now, I say all that because my role is geothermal lead, but we also work on CCS. We also work with with traditional oil and gas, trying to make all of these operations the most productive they can be, which is ultimately the best, the best thing for the environment. The more energy you can produce from a single well or the more sea- C- CO2 you can pump into a single well, the better it is.
0: Okay, so I think I know where the whole geo component fits in, but I want to make sure that I'm probably just – no, just enough to be dangerous. I want to make sure that I understand how this is all fitting together. So why am I – going to hire a geophysicist or somebody who is a uh applies this knowledge and expertise when i am doing a ccus project
1: so think about a ccus project as it's almost the opposite of in oil and gas project, in an oil and gas project, you have oil or gas. It is in the subsurface and that is in the pore space. And you want to pull that out.
0: Right. And so you need to so understand you have to, the rocks so that you yep. can, you know how to pull that, where it is and how to pull it out.
1: Exactly. And now for a CC, the CCS project, so the utilization part would all be, would all be surface side or technically, uh, enhanced oil recovery. So we can say CCUS to understand how much carbon or CO2 you can pump back into the ground. Cause that's, that's what a sequestration and storage project is, is you're taking carbon. Now you are pumping it into the ground. Where is that going to go? it's going to first and foremost and predominantly be in the pore space. So you have to understand the reservoir. You have to map out the reservoir. You have to understand the rocks, the rock types, the amount of pore space, and then how that, how that formation is going to react with you pumping a bunch of CO2 down into it. Is it going to expand? Is it going to start having chemical reactions? Is it, And this is this is the biggest challenge and the biggest concern, is that going to cause any type of induced seismicity or or leakage of the CO2 back into the surface or or layers above, which which could be that in itself could be a a major environmental issue. Obviously. So those aspects are are all things that geologists and geophysicists And geomechanicists, that's what they're looking at. They want to understand what's going to happen. What can you, what is the void space in that reservoir? And now what's going to happen once you start pumping CO2 into it?
0: Do we have, so we've been reading a lot about this. And of course, there's always two camps. There's people that are like, yeah, this is a great opportunity for us to explore. Uh, The technology needs to be advanced more. And they talk about it in a very positive light that yeah, this is something that we need to continue to invest in. But there's the other side that argues two main points that I keep seeing and having discussions around. And one is, is that the cost is ridiculous and we could be spending money um, a lot more effectively in other in other ways, but the, the main one is that there is an envir- the environmental and the, the seismic, as you said, um, implications of all of this. Do you know of any examples of where things have gone awry that give any fuel to the argument that we should not be doing this? I and it could be the answer is no, that people are just.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Now, I'm sure that I will I will get corrected. But when when I think about the the CCS projects that I know of, I think of of Slepner, which is North Sea. There was a major project uh, offshore west West Western Australia. and then in the. US, there is a a class six well in Decatur, Illinois of all places, the Illinois Basin, where my grandma lives. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's
0: the important part.
1: <laughs> that's the important part. And then also uh, there's a a test facility up in Canada. Those are the ones that I am am keenly aware of. There was just a well approved that was that was approved in California, another Class Six well. So there's the I, I say all of that because there's not a very large data set when we're talking about CO two being injected in the ground as as with the primary goal of carbon storage, but. Given this small data set, there are there are no there are no examples that come to mind of of catastrophic failures.
0: Okay, so what you've done now is I will go I'm ahead. gonna
1: add I'm gonna add one caveat there. Go. That with the I think it is um, Mammoth Lake, Mammoth Hot Springs. There is a, a geothermal plant there, but the natural the natural volcanic system has spots where – because CO2 is heavier than air. When there is a lot of CO2 coming out of the ground and there's not enough wind and, and not enough thermal movement of the atmosphere, that CO2 will p- pool. And you can find – sections of dead trees where there is an increase in geothermal activity, there's pooling of CO2, and then plant life and animal life dies in that spot. And so the idea of a pool of CO2 getting to the surface and pooling, that is a, it's a serious concern.
0: Okay, so let me make sure- it should
1: not be taken lightly.
0: But let me make sure that I understood exactly what you said. Mammoth Lake- is a naturally occurring uh, phenomenon in in yeah. that where we can see what the effects of the pooling of CO two would be. It is not yeah uh, something a, a, a man made situation gone wrong with us trying to to inject CO two in the ground. Okay, so you have now uh, walked brilliantly into my trap of showcasing. <laughs> Right, because everybody knows I'm like the oil and gas person that stands up and goes, "Yay, oil!" Right? Um, which, which is to say, w- nobody, no company, is running out there and just taking CO two, capturing CO two, and shoving it in the ground. This is not being done uh, without a lot of study. Uh, technology proper planning a lot that's going into this which requires people like yourself dr batir that have the knowledge and expertise to pull these things off these are highly technical yeah. problems and that have been yep. solved before they're moving forward
1: yeah they are they they are being solved and actively being monitored as they're being moved forward really the in order to do any type of injection, you need either a class two well or a class two well for any kind of, I I call it regular injection, but a class six well for specifically CO2 injection for storage. So there are, there are checks and balances in place and, and a process that you go through in order to be able to do any type, any of these types of operations.
0: Fantastic. Okay. So let's now come back to, we went on a little bit, but a very relevant tangent on the topic of uh, carbon capture, but let's go back to the topic of geothermal power, geothermal energy as a viable option in the renewable energy space within the the energy transition. I would love to get the high highly educated intelligent description of the use of geothermal energy within the context of the energy transition
1: yes what is it i get my soapbox (laughs) there you
0: go (laughs) there you go
1: so i i like to start off with i i am in all of the above solution guy i do think that that in order to have a reliable resilient sustainable grid we are going to need a diverse grid and a diverse energy basket with all of that being said i think the i think geothermal is the foundation of that in that geothermal is the is the baseload electricity generation geothermal is the heating and cooling option for for decreasing our our grid needs and geothermal and the the concepts or the 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 engineering and technical know-how of geothermal energy production is will also enable ultra long duration energy storage in the subsurface using thermal energy storage in in traditional saline aquifers, okay. So geothermal, very, it can become a major component.
0: You used the words, maybe you didn't mean to. Um, Baseload. Yep. So, are you? Have you? Are you? going to get any of my listeners screaming at their radio uh, or that radio nobody listens at a radio uh, screaming at their into their iPhone see how old i am um <laughs> screaming in into their to at their iPhones uh that no this guy's this guy's got it wrong geothermal is really not that significant it's just some sort of yeah another one of these side things that that's going to add to the energy transition.
1: Yeah, so there's there's two aspects to that that I would comment on. First, base load as the definition is it is something that is greater than 80% capacity factor. Geothermal can be on on average geothermal is 90%, so it is up in that Power plant is up and running 90% of the time. Okay. And some, some of those, some geothermal plants will be running 95 to 96%. The only time they're down is really for, for planned maintenance. So it is a okay. and that's traditional geothermal electricity. So it can be a baseload electricity. The 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 other question of is it a significant opportunity? There are multiple different studies looking at different components of geothermal. I'll just highlight the the electricity portion. The electricity portion within the U.S. alone, there are are estimates and goals to get to, to... to 60 gigawatts by 2050 of geothermal electricity. Now that is admittedly, that is still a small number, 60 gigawatts, but that is a, that is 60 gigawatts of baseload power running 95% capacity factor. And that is still only a, that is a estimate of, utilizing 10 or 20 or maybe 30 percent of the actual estimated energy resource so that is more of a looking at supply chain looking at at um at money on the sidelines looking at all of the different different components necessary to get to installation this is what we want to get to that doesn't mean that's the limit the limit is is essentially limitless if you look at some of the different studies out there that, that show there's actually limitless geothermal energy in the ground. But the um, – where was I going with that? So there is a significant resource to put online. And the last comment there is that we're talking about 95% capacity factor. Ninety-five percent is significantly different than the twenty percent for solar or thirty percent for wind. So we are essentially putting three to four times the amount of usable power on the grid compared to wind or solar. And I think that's the that's the hardest part. When I'm talking about sixty gigawatts of geothermal, that's like that's like I can't uh, almost, I can't do mental math almost, that good.
0: Almost five times Almost five times.
1: So we're talking about two to 300 gigawatts of wind or solar.
0: Yeah. So that that was the question I was going to ask you because – or I was going to try to lead you back to that point. Thank you for anticipating. Okay. So
1: before – okay, go ahead. And that's just one component. That is just – if we're talking about electricity, if you start adding in all these other components of energy storage, heating and cooling – and decarbonizing heat for industrial processes. Now you start to look at this bigger picture where, yeah, we may be talking about 5, 10, 20% of the grid energy, but now we're also talking about reducing the grid energy by 10, 20, 30%. And we're also talking about reducing the fossil fuel consumption for industrial heat processes by 10 or 20 or 30%. Now you start to getting this compounding effect where we have a net 50, 60% that's geothermal related energy.
0: Okay. I gotta am taking notes like crazy. So I make sure that I come I can come back to um, all of the follow-up questions because there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we do that, let's uh, I'm I'd like to remind everybody that I'm growing the number of uh, university students that are listening to the show. And let's take one step back and just very quickly and basically explain to my audience how geothermal works. Paint a picture in their minds.
1: Yep. So geothermal the simplest definition, you have heat beneath your feet. That heat can be produced. And so
0: the natural heat can, in the earth in the earth is what you're saying.
1: The natural heat that's in the earth. you drill a well and you essentially produce a a brine, a hot hot salt water, produce that out. And depending on where that is in the temperature – where it is temperature-wise, you either take it, you run it through a heat exchanger, and you use that to either heat your home or you use it to heat heat uh, pools or or any type of large buildings. So that's direct-use heating.
0: So wait, we're pumping – we drill a hole. We're pumping a, a hole. A pumping brine into the earth.
1: The Pumping it out. You're
0: pumping it out.
1: You're gonna pump that brine out of the earth. You're going to but don't you have to pump it in first?
0: Don't you have to pump water? You don't
1: need to. No. No. So part of part of my job, part of what we do for clients, part of the exploration phase is finding that water. Ah. You can find hot water already in the ground. Okay. And then you can produce that, extract the heat through a heat exchanger. Okay. And you pump that now cooled brine back into the ground. So it's a it is a it is a a full cycle process where all that water you produce, you can pump every single bit of it back into the ground, create this this loop cycle, and just extract the heat. Got it. You can use that, and then that side, now you're starting to talk about either electricity generation or direct use of of that heat or pumping that into any type of of industrial heat process.
0: So there is an infrastructure on the surface that needs to be constructed. Yep. In in order for all of this to to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's the resource component. You have to find that hot water drill wells to produce that hot water. But then at the surface, you also need, you need those engineered components to extract the heat. One part, that's a heat exchanger. And then after you extract that heat, you have to utilize that heat. And that is that utilization component. That is another one of those of how do you best use that heat to get the best, um, to get your the most bang for your buck. Okay, essentially. so
0: the one that the application that resonated with me uh, when you were rattling off all of the different use cases was decarbonizing um, the industrial sector. So, are we seeing advancements, uh, projects? Projects is the right word. Are we seeing projects occurring near industrial centers or is that just on the horizon?
1: It is, I think it is hopefully on the horizon. Okay. There are niche projects here and there and there are unique projects that are more looking at the resource and trying to build an economy or an industry around that resource. But the, the idea of, of finding an industrial user like a lumber mill, let's say, or, or a milk pasteurization. That was an example I recently saw. Those are, are industrial. Well, those are agricultural or industrial processes that need heat, and how do you go in and decarbonize that heating process? So geothermal could be one of those. Okay. For, for, for higher temperatures like steel making and, and any type of mills, that is, that is more of a challenge. But you do see that in Iceland. There are multiple aluminum smelting ah. facilities that were built in Iceland specifically for the renewable energy.
0: Very cool. It, yeah. Very cool. Okay, so we've been talking about the advantages. Let's yep. let's now pivot. We're we're hinting at the disadvantages. What are the disadvantages of geothermal?
1: the The primary disadvantages, I there for traditional geothermal, there are some amounts of of incondensable gases that will get released. So natural geothermal, as we said earlier, there is a component of CO2 in natural geothermal systems. And that component usually can't be recondensed and re-injected. That usually gets released. Part of that could also be the there's components of sulfur in there as well that could also be released. So most of the time, that's just... An inconvenience of of a little bit more of a dirty smell in the air of your of your rotten eggs. Some people would call that the smell of money, but the 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 um the actual risk there is usually pretty low. Yeah, but it's never, dude.
0: Let's think about it. There's in the oil industry. Yeah, now heavy sour crude is yeah. not new to us. We deal yeah. with sour crude yeah. all the time. So Exactly. You know, yeah. So it might be scary so those, to the general public, but the energy yeah. the industry where it's not scary to us. Yeah. We know what to do.
1: And it's usually and it's usually really low as far as the 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 risk there and even the the amount. I I I have heard significantly more stories of, of your H2S monitors going off on a, on an oil and gas rig than I've ever heard on a geothermal.
0: Yeah. Rig. Yeah.
1: So yeah, it, it's usually not a major component and maybe that's, maybe that's a function of the projects that I've worked, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. no, those are the, okay. those are some of the environmental factors. There's also some amount of risk of, 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 um other factors that we always look at for our projects is induced seismicity and and um subsidence. So because you're producing all of this water, you could actually produce enough water to start causing subsidence. Oh, if, okay. If you are not properly managing your reservoir and if you are not properly reinjecting and keeping pressure within your reservoir. So that is a that's a challenge that was more. Um, it was it was seen more in the earlier days, say the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when reinjection wasn't wasn't thought about as much. Nowadays, nearly everybody reinjects back into the peripheral zone of their reservoir, that keeps production, that makes long term sustainable production capable and it it reduces that potential for for subsidence and also when you think about subsidence moving the entire earth down you could have a potential for induced seismicity by reinjecting you are also reducing your potential for induced seismicity and so yes. all of that is is part of this sustainable reservoir management that is that final component of as you're producing a reservoir, you want to be able to produce it as long as you can. And so having real-time and active monitoring taking place and continually updating and keeping track of your reservoir through numerical modeling, those are all very important components.
0: Okay. So just like we talked about on the, the carbon capture storage uh, discussion, n- none of this is being done willy-nilly. There's... There's a lot of advanced thinking. As a matter of fact, you and I are both very familiar with uh, Professor Jeff Tester at Cornell University and the project that they have uh, at Cornell where they've, they're have they leveraging geothermal to heat that beautiful, uh, beautiful campus in Ithaca, New York. Which, by the way, I looked up the temperature in Ithaca today, and it's the same as here in Houston, Texas. I'm like, what the heck is going on? But anyway, that's just a side note. <laughs> All right. Dive into... Yep. The one component that you haven't mentioned, and I don't know if this is a positive or a negative, but the cost factor. So I think that uh, maybe we we have to go away and, and do the math on this, but you talked about how we want to, at, by 2050, we want to get to 60 gigawatts of geothermal power. What is the cost of geothermal projects in, in, in its entirety to, to produce a certain amount of of power in comparison to other renewable energy uh, sources like wind or solar.
1: Yeah. So when it comes to the, the cost there's right now, it is more, it, it, it can be comparable because areas. And I guess this is one thing we didn't mention earlier is that, that, geothermal today traditional geothermal is is location dependent in that most of it is around the ring of fire yeah think of where you've got volcanoes that is where you've got active geothermal systems that's where people are producing geothermal today so in those areas the costs can be anywhere from from $30 30 to $50 a megawatt hour all the way up to $150 a megawatt hour. Okay. It really just depends on where you are, how much it costs to, to build these and, and the, the understanding of the system, just various components. But in the U S it new projects come online when it is economic for them to come online. So, there are projects that could be as low as $50 a megawatt hour. Some of them that were built in the eighties during the oil embargo, they were getting power purchase agreements of, of something. I think the, the highest I heard was they were getting $200 a megawatt hour selling into California. So I, I may be wrong on that number, but it was something that was like, okay, yeah, that, I can make any project work for that price. Yeah, right. So that is, that is traditional geothermal today for where we're going, this idea of geothermal anywhere or enhanced geothermal systems where now you can start drilling, drilling to the temperature, creating your reservoir and producing it. That is right now. Those are, our I don't have hard economic numbers for them, but the DOE has they've been doing these uh these DOE earth shots. So the idea of getting renewable energy to an economic level, one of them for hydrogen is they want to get to $1 a kilogram to produce green hydrogen. Yeah. And for geothermal, they want to get enhanced geothermal systems. So the idea of being able to go pretty much anywhere with geothermal, they want that down to $45 a megawatt hour. And that is now comparable with, with it is competitive with nearly all other baseload or peaking plant facilities.
0: Okay. So when you start talking about the Department of Energy... And their aspirations and what they're putting forth for goals, target target numbers like this. Are we seeing monies, federal monies, for example, through the IRA, uh, being made available to the advancement of geothermal energy?
1: Yes, we are. Okay. With the IRA specifically, there are new uh, new tax credits. So there's a production tax credit and also an investment tax credit. the The specifics on those, I, I'm not going to try and and quote right now, but they have changed for geothermal as part of the IRA, which is making projects more attractive to to get off the ground today. And then you also see money coming through the DOE and the Geothermal Technology Office for advancing advancing enhanced geothermal systems. One of the projects I'll highlight is FORGE, which stands for Frontier Observatory uh, for Research in Geothermal Energy. And that one is, it's in Utah. It's all about understanding how to make an EGS system and do it in a practical way. There are, there's another one called geode, which I think it's, it's basically transferring oil and gas technology and industry knowledge and expertise into geothermal to expedite geothermal energy development. And then those are the two that I'll highlight. And, I, I'm not going to highlight the Cornell project because you already have, but it also is in a different program that is it's still utilizing all of the same ideas, technologies, and and know-how, but it's looking at it from a different angle. So, so that's a long-winded way of saying yes. Money is coming in for geothermal. I think there is additional money coming in. I would say there needs to be exponentially more money for geothermal
0: okay and are we seeing so uh, first a, a, a question and then a follow-up comment which i think is really important um for our younger generation but are we seeing and i have not i've not heard maybe just because i haven't been paying attention you would pay attention but we're we're continuing to see in the news uh companies like exxon Mobil investing the huge dollars into their their carbon capture program are we seeing anything similar to that coming out of the big boys for geothermal or are they just not focused on it i haven't seen anything
1: yeah so the the biggest comment that i could make on that is probably if you look at the the public announcements coming from Chevron. Okay. They have partnered with companies. They are investing into geothermal projects. They have reinvested into traditional geothermal projects in in I'll I'll just say outside of the US in international areas. Mm-hmm. So you can see it coming from them. From a from a larger perspective and other major investments. And I I guess the other one is Oxy Oxy was recently awarded funding through one of these projects, one of these DOE GTO projects to do a, a pilot study. And so, yes, you're starting to see some movement, but it, I don't think it is as big as you would hope or expect. Maybe it's just not as sexy. Yeah. It's not as, it's not as, um, as obvious to people. So when you, when you talk to somebody on the street, you ask them about climate change or like, what can we do to, to, to save humanity? And they'll say, oh, we need to stop producing CO2. And then somebody says, then you can be like, oh, well, what if we just collected it all and, and trapped it and and removed it from the atmosphere? They're like, Oh yeah, sure. That works. Yeah. As opposed to saying, well, what if we switch our natural gas to geothermal? And they're like, what? Yeah. What do you mean? How do we do that? Yeah. So it's, I think it is for, and this is just me putting on my, my thinking cap. If I'm thinking about, what is gonna get better press and what's gonna gonna make my my company look yeah more attractive it's gonna be saying oh we are actively removing CO2 or we are actively <laughs> capturing it and storing yeah it. that makes that all is, the sense in the world. That's different. You know what I'm gonna yeah. do
0: is is I'm gonna after we conclude here in a in a in a minute is I'm gonna look in to see what the Norwegians are doing. I bet you anything that Equinor is is investing in this i i just know the norwegians have a tendency to to be ahead of the game so i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna take a look into that and i'm sure people will, will write in or send in some information um from that part yeah. of the world but one of the, co- the comment i wanted to make listening to you talk is and again back to the younger the younger generation um I remember a few years ago, there were young people not that long ago, maybe five years ago, that the younger people that were coming out of college that had with geology degrees uh, thinking that they were going to go to work in in the energy sector were just they were just no jobs available, even people that had been working for 10 years being laid off because, you know, our industry was in a downturn. And so it was just kind of a desperate situation with people with that sort of background. Now, listening to you talk about this, that uh, education and that expertise for the people that had already been working, that there's got to be a, a, a new hope because we need that sort of, of knowledge and expertise to be working on these. So I, I hope you agree with that, that there's some... There's some hope for those folks.
1: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with it. I think it. There is. I like to say that the 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 answer is the subsurface because everything we've just talked about CCS pulling and storing the carbon that's in the air out of it and energy storage and and natural energy, all of that is still in the subsurface. And, and even think about as we produce natural gas and oil, as, as the transitionary fuels that get us to this, this future, this net zero future or true zero future, or whatever, whatever future it has, there is still going to be oil and gas that is going to be a part of it at, in some capacity. So really the everything's coming from the earth except for except for everything that came from the sun that 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 is now in the earth i digress
0: <laughs> i'm starting to ramble
1: the the point here is that geologists engineers and and specifically reservoir engineers and geotechnical engineers all of those are going to be necessary for for producing the energy and the raw materials that we need as we continue to continue to have society
0: yeah yeah and and to to develop in in different directions. So Joe, I'm gonna yep. ask you to do me a favor. Ken, would you be willing to to come back on and talk? a little bit more about these things uh, in depth and, and beyond just the geothermal and, and share with my listeners what you're seeing on the Energy Transition Solutions podcast. So every once in a while, I I mention to my listeners to, to tune in to, to your show, but I'd love to have you come on and we could just do uh, a discussion, a whole show on what you're seeing on your show, some of the other uh, energy transition uh insights that you've been gathering um since since you started your show how things have been evolving i'm wondering if you'd be willing to come on and and share that knowledge and expertise with with my audience
1: yeah absolutely i i always enjoy talking about it so i will gladly join you again for another show
0: um fantastic joe i I could probably sit here all day and ask a million questions, but I think my listeners are not tired of listening to your voice, but they're definitely tired of listening to mine at uh, 52 minutes and counting here. So thank you very, (laughs) very, very, very much for finally uh, coming on my show and sharing the knowledge and expertise from the rock doc himself.
1: Well, Delfina, thank you so much for, for, inviting me and having me on your show. It's been a lot of fun. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Well, same here. And we'll see you on the next one.
1: Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.